You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Good morning and welcome one last time to Grace Community Church. Well, you'll be welcome the whole time, but uh, this is the last time probably you'll hear that. If you are here for the first time today, we extend to you a very special welcome. Thank you for choosing to worship the Lord together with us on this day. My name is Brad Talley. I'm the teaching elder here at Grace. Uh, Our church is led by a group of elders. They're all pastors. And so we all welcome you. The entire church welcomes you. Um, Just a couple of things I want to mention. First, Wednesday night, We're going to gather as a church body at 6.30 after a day of fasting and prayer, if you will, from Tuesday after dinner until Wednesday after we meet. If you would fast during that time, I am on my second, I'll be on my second round of steroids, so I'll be eating plates, chairs, everything (laughs) in sight, so I probably will not be able to fast with you, but I will try to make it up some other time, but If you're unable to fast the whole time, fast for a meal. And even if you can't at all, please join us. We're going to be meeting in the back of the church. The youth have gotten so large that they've taken over this space on Wednesday night. So we're going to meet in the room formerly known as the youth room. I hope we never change that name, but I think we will pretty soon. But as long as I can say it, I'm going to say it. The room formerly known as the youth room in the very back. Jim McLaughlin is going to be leading our time as we think about faithfulness in gospel living. Uh, Two, three summers ago, I just sensed the Lord leading to preach through the the book of Malachi in the Old Testament, the last book of the Old Testament. And after a lot of prayer and study and leading of the Lord, we did go through the book of Colossians that summer. Malachi is a tough book. It really is. And Jeff Kelly did an awesome job last week laying out the entire book of Malachi. He preached from the end of it, but gave us just a good sense of how that book works and how it's placed in scripture and its purpose in pointing us to Jesus in our insufficiency and the sufficiency that we find in Christ. It was a little over a year ago, January 13th, 2019, that we began a sermon series here at Grace on the Gospel of John, which takes its title from the first chapter, verse 14 to be exact. The Word became flesh. Think about what a beautiful truth that is. The Word referring to Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Jesus, who was the second person of the Trinity, became a human being and dwelt among us, made his dwelling among us. He came to die so that we might have life. The second person of the Trinity became human, born in Bethlehem to Mary and to us. For unto us a child is born and a son is given. This series could have been titled that you may believe, which would sum up the Apostle John's purpose statement for his gospel found at the end of the book in John 20, verses 
30 to 31. Now, this is a good time for me to tell you. As we pick back up in John, we've been away since November, but we're picking back up in John. And we have a couple of John journals. If you're new to the church, they're black. We had some frilly purple ones, but apparently they're more popular than the black ones that are just very plain. But inside, you've got scripture on one side and places for taking notes on the other. So they're at the next steps table, which is in the back left of the lobby as you walk out of these doors after the service. We'd love for you to have one. No cost, just uh, pick one up if you're interested in following along as we go. You know, all four Gospels give a lot of attention, a whole lot of attention, to the period in Jesus' life of the Thursday through Sunday of Passion Week. When you look at the beginning from the triumphal entry on, a large percentage or a significant percentage of all the Gospels is dedicated to that time period. Um, but John is, is very different from the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Very little that is in the synoptics is found in John, and none of the material in John 13 to 17, which is also known as the farewell address, which I'll address in a few weeks, uh, is found in the synoptics. Complementary? Yes. Confusing? A bit. Controversial? To some. I won't go into the details here, but when we get to John 18, we'll see that there is some controversy over the language in John that seems to place Jesus' crucifixion on Thursday, or some would even say on Wednesday. I feel confident that was what was made clear in the synoptics that Jesus died on Friday is correct, and that John's account, while not as clear as the synoptics, is not in conflict. If you wonder how Jesus spent three days and three nights in the tomb, if he died on Friday and rose on Sunday, just to understand that the Jewish reckoning of days is not the same as ours. In fact, if you know people who practice the Sabbath, when do they begin that Sabbath, which is Saturday, right? On Friday night. At sundown on Friday, it's considered a day. Again, more about that later as we go. Uh, there are surely explanations that resolve the apparent discrepancies that exist. But like so many places in Scripture, our faith or lack of faith will determine whether we're satisfied with the explanations or the mystery that remains. I choose to believe Jesus and trust that one day all will be made known to those who believe. So it is this Jesus that we see in John 13, our Jesus, stooping to wash his disciples' feet, emblematic of his leaving heaven to fulfill the Father's plan as Savior and Redeemer of sinful men and women. Before we work our way through the first 20 verses of John 13 and then draw some conclusions, our scripture reading this morning is going to be Philippians 2, 5 to 11, it's in perfect harmony with what is going on here. It's our custom to stand as the scripture is being read. So if you would please stand for the reading of God's word. I will be reading from the English Standard Version. <clears throat> 
Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to tightly, but emptied himself. Not He did not empty himself of his divinity, but of some of his divine privileges. He laid aside to become one of us. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The word of God for the people of God. Thank you and be seated. If you're listening via podcast, I want to encourage you to have your Bible open to John 13 as you listen, or to read John 13, 1 through 20 before continuing. Uh, you, you do not have to go far in John's gospel to encounter a rich theological focus. The first verse, in fact, we've already talked about, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This morning, we're going to work our way through John 13, 1 to 20, and then draw three theological conclusions as we move toward the Lord's table. Speaking of the table, John's gospel is the only one of the four that omits Jesus' establishment of the Lord's Supper. But almost certainly, the events of John 13 took place around that particular meal. Why does John omit this meal? I'm not sure. There are lots of possible explanations, but I'm not too concerned about it. God left it as it was. I'm not sure it is possible for us to understand the level of humility required for Jesus to wash his disciples' feet. You understand why washing feet was important in the ancient Near East, right? Shoes were open-toed sandals that not only picked up dust and trash from the roads, but also accumulated some of what the animals had deposited as well. Uh, to make matters worse, meals were often eaten in a reclining position, and in this case, in a circular uh, configuration most likely, so that your, your face was never too far from someone else's feet. And it was a big deal that their feet had not been washed. At the very least, a good host or hostess would provide water for guests to wash their own feet. And if slaves were available, they didn't get together and draw straws. Lowest slave, newest slave, had this odious task of washing people's feet. Thus, it was not only incongruous, it was unthinkable, unconscionable for any self-respecting Jew to wash others' feet. When it was Peter's turn to have his feet washed, he did what he so often did. He stuck his foot in his mouth. And in this case, it was an unwashed foot. 
But Peter was, frankly, speaking for all the disciples when he said in so many words, Jesus, surely you understand this is no way for the Messiah to act. What are you doing? Luke tells us that at this meal, a dispute had arisen as to which of the disciples would be regarded as the greatest when Jesus came into his kingdom. It is no surprise that Peter, who would have been considered a leading candidate for greatest disciple, both by himself and by all the rest, they would have said, oh yeah, Peter's in the running. Greatest disciple. It's no surprise that he would say, Lord, do you wash my feet? It's easy for us to judge his impertinence from 20 centuries and many cultures away. But Peter only asked what everyone else in the room was already thinking, but just didn't have the courage to say. Jesus responded, I know this doesn't make sense to you now, but it will. What Jesus did not say, but we, un we do understand from this distance, is that after his death, burial, and resurrection, and the sending of the Holy Spirit, you will understand. Peter was having none of it. You shall never wash my feet. It takes longer for some of us to understand than it does for others. Do not make Peter's mistake, though, up in the ante with Jesus. You're going to lose every single time. If I do not wash your feet, Peter, you have no part with me. I think Peter's response was genuine. Lord, I cannot bear the thought of being separated from you. Not my feet, but all of me. There's a lot going on here. And we're going <clears> to <throat> get to some of it in the application. But, but you should at least make the connection between what Peter says here and what he has said elsewhere. Whenever Jesus talked about his death, Peter was leading the charge saying, Don't talk about that. Don't worry, Lord, we're going to protect you. That didn't work out too well on the protection end for Peter. A suffering Savior is antithetical to human thought. It just makes no sense. Although the notion that we earn the good things that happen in our lives is universal, the idea of good works equals salvation has been perfected in America these last 250 years. Perhaps that is why in Jesus' day, even those who believed in him had difficulty grasping that he would go to the cross, even though it had been prophesied in the Old Testament. Surely that's not what that means. When you accept and understand Jesus going to the cross to pay for our sins, everything changes. Everything changes. When Jesus told the disciples that all but one of them were clean, he noted that once washed, always... Wait, wait a minute, I'm not going to say that. Surely not. Once saved, always. Once you're clean through salvation... Your body is clean. That's what Jesus is saying. But your feet still get dirty and need to be clean. Your sins are forgiven when you trust Jesus. And your eternity 
is set. But we still sin. We will until the day we die. And God has made this beautiful way for our sins to be forgiven by confessing them to the Lord. Who is it that forgives our sins? God the Father, for Jesus' sake. There is no doubt that Jesus had the disciples' attention when he put his outer garments back on. But I imagine they thought that he had quit preaching and gone to meddling when he said, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Think about it. Less than an hour earlier, they had been arguing, who's going to be the greatest? And now the Savior is saying, wash each other's feet. Maybe Jesus was silent for a moment before he asked them in so many words. You, wait a minute. You don't think you're above me, do you? I've just done this. Now do it for one another. Next week, we're going to think about Judas' betrayal. But I wanted to include verses 18 to 20 this morning. Not only as an introduction to this topic. But to see how Judas' betrayal fits into the flow of the chapter. This was going to be a full-blown betrayal. And Jesus did not want his disciples to be thrown by Judas' action. So he warned them ahead of time. In fact, he said, it's already in Scripture. Don't be surprised when it happened. They were surprised. They were shocked. Who is it, Lord? Is it, who's going to betray you? Is it I? I know that some of you have questions about these verses. And your concerns will be addressed at some level next week. As we move toward the table this morning, though, I want to consider three theological conclusions from our text today, beginning with this world will never provide the comfort that Jesus' devoted followers and all people for that matter desire. This world will never give us the comfort, give us the place where we feel accepted and right that we desire. Never. I subscribe to Audible and this Past week, Audible offered a, a 90-minute story written and read by James Taylor. You may know him as Sweet Baby James or String Bean. I call him JT, and I admit unashamedly, I am a huge fan of James Taylor's music. But his music and performances are always bittersweet. This book is an autobiography of his first 21 years. I'm just getting going good. Uh, the period of his life from which much of his music emanates. James Taylor says so many things about his past. It was a very troubled past. And he, he says what I say often. We spend most of our lives trying to get over our childhood, right? And he says a lot of things can't be worked out going back, trying to work them out. But you can work them out in art. And so he's deceived himself into thinking that everything can be okay if you just work it out. I've always assumed James Taylor to be a flat-out atheist who mocks Christianity and Christian values. So I was a bit surprised when he had this to say about his beliefs. Quote, I think of myself as a jealous agnostic. I don't really believe, but I envy those who do. 
Religion helps people think as a collective humanity. It moves us away from the prison of the isolated self, our tooth and claw. That's an expression that talks about life in the animal kingdom where predators are killing other animals and red and tooth and claw. Church brings people together as a collective, and so does a concert. This seems to be a perfect example of Augustine's notion of a God-shaped vacuum in every person. Augustine said this to the Lord, Thou hast made us for Thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in Thee. Close quote. J.T., James Taylor is trying to fill that void through music just like all of us are constantly trying to fill the void in our lives through music, through distraction of some way, whether we're creating or just receiving the entertainment that has been created for us and makes a lot of money for the people who create the entertainment. So we have the authentic right alongside the counterfeit. But the counterfeit is oh so compelling. Just think of how compelling cultural norms were to Peter and the rest. Lord, it is unbecoming for you to take your robe off, for goodness sake, and then to wash our feet. It's unthinkable. You soon will wear a crown. Peter was correct, but it would be a crown different to what he anticipated this time. Jesus could have said, Peter, if this rattles your world, see how you feel 24 hours from now. He immediately, Peter immediately backed down when the Lord gave him a choice. This life with me is all or nothing. It's all or nothing. We've already seen Peter's devotion in John 6, even when almost everyone else walked away from Jesus. Kingdom ways will never make sense to the world or to the culture. Think of the statement we make as we come forward this morning, as we will during the Lord's Supper, and we partake of the bread and the juice. Think of how odd that seems to the culture. In the first century, Christians, first couple of centuries, Christians were accused of being cannibals because they ate the body and drank the blood of Jesus. The disciples were repeatedly asked if they were sure about following Jesus. It was Jesus usually who was asking them, Really? You want to go with me all the way? Yes, Lord, we can, we can go. Well, you will, but you're not, it's not going to be exactly like you think. It's no different today. All your life as a believer you are repeatedly required to affirm your faith in Jesus. The lines are much clearer today than they were 30 to 40 years ago, but one thing has not changed. Believers are still trying to correct Jesus about his ways and his expectations for us. Lord, surely you don't require fill in the blank. But he does. There is nowhere in Scripture that presents the decision to follow the Lord as a casual, on-again, off-again proposition. It's 
all or nothing. This includes both when you trust Jesus, both standing against injustice such as racism and caring little about the needs of the poor. It, it includes standing for, for values that align with God's character, such as life and biblical marriage. And all must be done with gentleness and a loving heart and the same spirit with which the Savior washed the feet of his disciples. It is not easy to follow Jesus. The world wants to know, and more importantly, the Lord wants to know, what is your decision? If you have not made your mind up already, best make it up soon. Second, the gospel presents a theology of the cross. Everything else is a theology of glory. Now, you've heard me use these terms. I'm going to define them, hopefully, at a, a level that will make sense. Because this is the crux of the whole Bible, really. It's what we encounter every day in our lives. When Peter rebuked Jesus for his humble service, he had no sense of the extent of Jesus' Humility that had already been expressed when he came from heaven and became 100% God, 100% man. He was already 100% God. Now he's 100% man with all the limitations of the human body. During the meal, Jesus lifted the bread symbolizing his body. And the wine, he lifted the wine as the symbol of his blood that would be shed for the forgiveness of of sins. This is the theology of the cross. Why would Jesus die? Because we can never be good enough to eliminate the penalty for our sins. It's like murdering someone and then saying, you know, I don't think the judge will send me to jail. I, I promise I'm going to do better. I know I can do better. I, I think it's going to be all right. When Jesus died, he died as a worthy sacrifice for our sins. We cannot die for one another. We cannot take the place. No matter how much we love someone, we all die for our sins. Jesus had no sins for which to die, and our sins were put on him. And the Father poured out his wrath on the Son because of his love for us, and Jesus willingly went to the cross, taking that wrath that we might have Life That is a theology of the cross. Because we could not attain heaven, he descended to us and met us at the cross. If you do not meet Jesus at the cross, then you are pursuing a theology of glory, which means that you think the way to God is through your own efforts. Gene Veith uh, describes it this way, quote, a theology of glory expects total success, finding all the answers, winning all the battles, and living happily ever after. The theology of glory is all about my strength, my power, my works. On the theology of glory side or the prosperity gospel, 
churches that mock the authority of Scripture and seek only to bring a religious bent to cultural sensibilities. And every other non-gospel Christian group, plus all other religions that seek to appease God, whomever he or she might be, by being a good and religious person, which is pretty much all religions. I've got to get to God, but we can't get to God. That's why he got to us. He came to us at the cross. It's lonely for those who believe the gospel. So we should not be surprised to observe in John's gospel the same thing that we see today. Person after person and group after group walking away from Jesus. Before you abandon the gospel, though, please consider the theological truth of this third and final point. Your decision to walk away from Jesus will not hinder or thwart God's sovereign plan. I, I confess that this is a backdoor way of me saying, begging really, do not walk away from Jesus. The grass is not greener. Away from him. This can only be stated by one who is fully convinced of the reliability of Scripture and the truth of the gospel. Please know, I do not mean this to be antagonistic, but people are walking away from Jesus in droves today. And you need to think about this before you decide to do that. Even though Judas was identified as a thief in John's gospel, he must have convinced himself that he was doing the right thing for the nation, in fact. I think it's just best for everybody concerned if, if we put a stop to this. This last point serves as a segue to next week's message. The truth of the word today, the truth of the word next week and in fact, the truth of the word in all ages among all peoples is this. If you walk away from Jesus, God's sovereign plan will not be affected. Judas did what he did according to God's sovereign plan, which raises all kinds of questions, some of which will be addressed next week, some of which I wouldn't touch with a 40-foot pole, much less a 10-foot pole. But my reluctance to wade in is not so much fear, but rather it's an acceptance in my heart that not every question can be answered. It's true in all fields of knowledge, no matter how committed a specific field of knowledge claims to be and, and, or claims to care only about truth and reality. Not everything can be explained. If, however, you believe Scripture to be God's authoritative and reliable word, you can rest in this truth no matter how many people around you are walking away from Jesus. The gospel is still true, and God's kingdom will prevail. We are sinners in need of a Savior. We cannot save ourselves, nor can we save others. If you choose to walk away from Jesus, you will not put yourself in a better position to love and care for others. In fact, the opposite is true. 
Furthermore, you will find just as many inconsistencies with other worldviews or social imaginaries as you think you wrestle with in your current biblical worldview. Your new group will have this advantage. Your new group, full of compelling ideas, will be shiny and new for a while. One day, each of us will be forced to make a choice. There's a difference between Judas' betrayal of Jesus and Peter's denial of Jesus. And the space between them is an eternal chasm. To make such a bold claim is to be firmly convinced that the Bible is true. All of it. I so believe and affirm regardless of what others think and regardless of what it costs me. Holy Spirit, give me strength to stand when tested. Amen. As we come to the Lord's table this morning, we affirm our belief that Jesus died as a perfect sacrifice for sinners. This is no trite observance of a meaningless ritual. It is clear testimony of our belief that Jesus is our Savior and our only hope of eternity. We so affirm, despite cultural misunderstanding and cultural disapproval, and I say this not with a martyr's complex, but rather as an acknowledgement that a theology of the cross and a theology of glory will never find communion. We commune as a body of believers today, as those who have assembled to meet Jesus at the cross. Really, it's Jesus who is meeting us. We've been drawn to the cross. And we worship him. Not because this meal saves us. But because it points to the one who does. We invite all who have repented of their sins. And who have put their trust in Jesus. Death on the cross as payment for their sins. To participate in this meal with us. This is a family meal, and our family extends far beyond these walls. All around the world. And we are united with those who believe Jesus. Though this meal does not save us, it nourishes us in our spiritual walk at a time when many are walking away from Jesus. Affirm your commitment to Him at this table with this meal. Let's pray. Father, week after week we are shocked at things that go on all around us. Horrible things, terrible things. But Lord, that which distresses us most maybe, maybe is, is those who once confessed Jesus now walking away 
Lord, we recognize that we cannot save ourselves, nor can we keep ourselves. Dear Lord Jesus, keep us close to you. Thank you, Father, for making this way for us to not only affirm to one another that we believe in Jesus, but to commune with you in a very special way, collectively, in the design that you have that everyone's trying to imitate, but nobody gets to apart from faith in Jesus. And so, Lord, with this faith, we come to this table today. And you have told us to come with clean feet, to confess our sins. And confession, Lord, brings us together as well as affirmation of faith. We acknowledge, Lord, and I ask all who have sins to confess to pray along with me. We ask that you would forgive us for the things that we have done. For our attitudes, we, things we have done that are against your will and against your holiness. And that we know are wrong. Forgive us, Lord, for our attitudes, even when we do the right thing. Attitudes that are self-centered and self-seeking. Forgive us, Lord, for the words that we have said. And the words that have been left undone. Or unsaid, unspoken, and they should have been said. We confess to you our sins and ask that you forgive us. We find forgiveness in the act that this table represents. The giving of the body that was perfect and the shedding of innocent and perfect blood became the propitiation, not only the satisfaction of sin to God, but also the exhaustion of God's wrath against our sin. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for us. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.